You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today's interview was recorded at the Momentum Summit in Asheville, North Carolina, where I had the opportunity to sit down with a few leaders whose companies were being honored as part of the inaugural Real Leaders 100 Most Impactful Companies in the World. Today's episode features Dave Kirkpatrick, who is at the forefront of the impact investing industry. Our conversation focuses on how both the industry and his investment philosophy has evolved over his 20 years as an investor. We also talk about some of the challenges of investing in different types of industries and the increasing evidence that investing for impact can actually improve a fund's financial performance as opposed to hinder it. Unfortunately, the audio quality is not great. We recorded the interview outdoors, so there's a lot of ambient noise in the background. I wanted to release this regardless of the occasional siren or chirping bird in the background because I thought that the conversation with Dave was so interesting, and I hope that you will as well. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. We're here at the Momentum Summit in Asheville, North Carolina, where I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dave Kirkpatrick, the co-founder and managing director of SJF Ventures. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks so much, Alex. Glad to be here. So you founded SJF back in 1999, 20 years ago, uh, long before the term impact investing had had even been coined. What uh, what led you to, to believe that you could you could achieve financial social returns alongside financial returns, and and may, maybe more impressively, how did you convince investors to invest in your first fund? Sure. Well, um, one correction is I co-founded Co- SJF, and uh, that uh, that distinction also goes to your to your question about how we raised the capital. So I co-founded it with Rick DePue, who was a general partner at Edison Ventures in the Princeton, New Jersey area. And Rick and I had gotten to know each other. I had been a solar and recycling entrepreneur, and then I was doing, uh, before they were called clean tech, but essentially clean tech and recycling investment forums, and Rick was speaking at my events. And really, it was over coffee with Rick that he said, well, why don't we start a fund investing in these types of companies? So this was in the late 90s, welfare to work era, and really looking to do something which had a deep uh, job creation, social impact, and good, reasonable financial returns. So Rick had had a very successful venture capital record, which was even still very active in that, but had the bandwidth to help co-found SJF and be the chair of our investment committee. So really, it was Rick's investment record plus my entrepreneurial record that kind of provided uh, the impetus to launch what was then called Sustainable Jobs Fund. That's where the SJF comes from. And, uh, and because Rick could not really be involved in another in a market grade venture fund, and because we were looking for a deep community impact, he said reasonable returns, not necessarily market rate with the first fund, and great job creation impacts. Uh, so that was the original founding of SJF, and it was a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution. I had gotten a loan for my first truck and my recycling and solar company called SunShares from Self Help Credit Union, one of the leading CDFIs in the country in Durham, North Carolina. 
And then we also partnered with the Reinvestment Fund in Philadelphia. So we had Durham and Philly offices, and we're within what the language at that time was community development venture capital. And there still is an active community development venture capital in line. So that was the original kind of founding and structure of SGF the first time. So you mentioned that the first fund was, was mission first, and your, your investment philosophy has, has changed a bit over the years. So first you were mission first, and then I believe you were targeting market rate returns, so financial returns where the, the, the return is commensurate with the risk, which in growth stage venture is, is, is quite considerable. Um, and then more recently, you've, you've started to target returns exceeding that of, of the market rate. What, what led to that change in, in philosophy? Sure, sure. And that really ties to the change in our name as well. So I think by 2001, we were realizing that really the market was not going to support a significant scale with a fund that did not have a market rate you know, achievement in, in financial returns. And I think we also began to realize that we could integrate really an impact strategy that in a way that drove financial performance and, and vice versa. So we realized that we, we thought we could achieve that as well. So we rebranded the fund SGF Ventures actually in the middle of the first $17 million first fund in that we changed and kind of essentially raised the bar on the hurdle for investments and enhanced our deal flow. And that second set of investments in the first fund performed much better, both on returns and impact. It led to us raising the second fund, the $28 million second fund from SGF Ventures 2. And so that that was part of our transformation from 2001 to 2003. Uh, and the other critical part of that evolution was then involving the team and recruiting a team with deep kind of market uh, commercial-based experience. So investment banking, investment management, entrepreneurship. And, but attracted to SGF because of our mission. So I, that that team started with David Price and David Kelly and Mel Ruth Floor, Cody Nystrom. All of those folks really joined in that era of the sort of 2003 to 2006-7. And, and our performance, fortunately, has been able to stair step continue forward with, with both the talent, the expertise uh, of, the, of that broader team. And also, I think, the world is going to come our direction, right? We're here at this Mo Summit where there's an Impact 100 uh, conference. And when we were doing this early days, we were attracting entrepreneurs who the heart was in the right place, but there was not a strong commercial strategy. I think now we're seeing those two come together much better. So that, that kind of leads me into my next question, which was how, how have you seen the industry evolve? It sounds like there's more social entrepreneurship. Um, I mean, from, from year one to, to year 10 to, to year 20, what are some of the changes you've seen in, in this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, uh, I think it has become, with the latest generation of, of folks of your age and, and younger and coming out of business schools and, and being involved in entrepreneurship, I think they're realizing there's no need for a sacrifice between their values and, their, and, and what they're doing in their day jobs. And so we're seeing more and more companies uh, you know, succeed both in, in um, you know, really virtuous business models and also avoiding some of the risks of companies that don't have a wider view. So I think the world has changed. I think in the investment world, the language of what we do has evolved. It, you know, in the early days, community development finance or CDFI, community development venture capital, 
and then their ESG and social responsible investing, kind of in the public markets. I think impact investing came along as a term really about a decade ago with work with Rockefeller and Garrett and many other early leaders. And that has created an umbrella and a, and a sense of sizzle and excitement, to tell you the truth, which has drawn more investors to the field. And mm -hmm. I think that has gone along with funds like early movers like ourselves and DBL Capital and Global Environment Fund and others, and certainly Generation, that have, have started to show, hey, you can really achieve you know, financial alpha through impact strategies as well. So some of that financial alpha was was like arbitrage opportunities, right? There are certain areas that, that investors, especially venture-type investors, were not investing in. So as the industry has continued to, to move into the mainstream, has it become more difficult to, to achieve the, the target returns that, that you're looking for? Uh, well, I think it has, to your point, I think we have a lot of private capital in the market now, in, in early 2019, and so there has been a flood of new venture investment in corporate VC and family office, and so the market has gotten more competitive, and I think more conventional capital sources are seeing the market opportunities in these impact sectors, so I do think... Yes, it has become more competitive, but at the same time, we have a lot more entrepreneurs as well. So, um, but we have examples. I think part of the, the strategy is to understand sectors well enough to be able to find great companies to support them early before others see them. An example in our portfolio is Nextracker. It's a solar tracking company. And solar in Cleantech 1.0 had been a very popular theme within Silicon Valley but it ended up being really early stage uh, technology bets, which ended up uh, with commercialization in Asia, especially China, had a depressed margin, so a lot of those investments did not go well. Hmm. So in the era that NextTrack was raising capital, most conventional VCs had moved out of solar, and it was a solar hardware play, no less. Uh, and so we were fortunate, DBL helped to spin it out, and then we led a Series B with that company, and it went from tens of millions to hundreds of millions, and we sold it in 10 months to Flex or Flextronics, and now it's deployed, I think, on 12 gigawatts globally uh, to wow. drive down the, the price of solar and very active in South America, in South America and in Asia as well. So that's a good example where we, I had had a solar company in the 80s for that matter, so we, we could see trends within the industry and stay at it in a sector with deep impact when it got out of vogue with conventional mm -hmm. uh, venture capital and achieve, you know, far above financial returns and far above impact returns as well. Your background is in clean tech, as you as you mentioned, and I, I think that that's one of the, the few industries where there's an inherent social impact alongside, you know, your financial returns. If you're, if you're mitigating climate change, you're benefiting society as a whole. Uh, when you moved into fintech and, and education and some of the other sectors that you know you're just as likely to to exacerbate a problem as you are to alleviate it how, how did that what was that change like how did that change your diligence process and the way you evaluated companies yeah no that's a great question i think that i mean even in clean tech say you can have a solar company is doing great on climate change but treats employees poorly or okay. a supply chain so i think we do take an integrated approach and have basically an impact strategy with the company that ties to their business strategy as we're in diligence. And I think that we look for alignment of the management team, 
that they're excited about driving that integrated approach. And mm -hmm. so that applies, I think, our move into, we've always, from our beginning, we did tech enhanced services and clean tech. Those themes have been re re refined as our team has matured and developed more expertise in different verticals. So Cody and Stephanie and our team lead the health and wellness, mm -hmm. uh, Arun Kapoor leads education, and so we've built out these, these themes over time, including food and food technology with David and Alan, and so, um, and then government technology also with Dan. So I think that it's really an evolution of looking at sectors in the economy where we think clearly societal environmental change needs to happen, and there is a clear market opportunity to achieve outsized financial returns. So we can't see segments where there are problems, but we just think due to regulatory, government policy, market issues, you know, it's more of a place for philanthropy right now. And so mm -hmm. we've got to kind of pick pick the places where we feel like we can scale. And yes, in education, like for-profit ed, you can there definitely are strategies that can be deleterious to social impact. So we have to find companies like Raise, which is micro scholarship platform mm -hmm. between high school to college, and really kind of provides a nice counter distinction to some of the negative things we've seen in education recently. Yeah, that's a great, great company. Yeah. Um, so, when you're at, if you're at a cocktail party with some family friends, explaining to them how you achieve both like social and, and financial returns, do you have a a store, a go-to story, or a, a portfolio company that you're particularly proud of? How do you explain yeah. that? What you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I tend to. I'm a bit of a solar geek, and okay. so I tend to talk about our solar companies. I've already <laughs> talked about Next Tracker. I'm on the board of Community Energy, which is has uh, is, is developed kind of 100 megawatt scale solar projects in about 20 states. So I talk about solar a lot. I also talk about mobility. Uh, mm -hmm. We recently, I just shared, we did a had an HBS case study in a company called Transload which is a public transit software company that we sold to Ford Smart Mobility uh, about a year and a half ago. And that is really finding, that's a good example. In the mobility space, you see the disruption of Uber and Lyft, uh, and all the transit agencies are trying to respond to this. And as we look for a positive impact strategy, I think with Ubers and Lyft, there's a lot of positive, there's a lot of concerns and negatives too in terms of how the drivers are paid, in terms of congestion within cities. But helping public transit agencies to be more responsive to to their to their citizens to allow for microtransit using their vans to be more responsive, like an Uber Lyft, um, that was something we felt like was clearly right in driving positive impact. And so, so I'll talk to about companies like that that, that that clearly the positive impact drove the financial results and vice versa. And again, in that one, in a year and a half, we sold it to Ford and generated a great return for our investors as well. So it's really the companies that, that tell the story so well. And we, we fortunately, we've got a lot of stories we can share. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there ever a balance between financial and social? I mean, if you, if you find a company that you think will have great financials, but maybe only a little bit of social return, or a company that has you know, the potential for amazing social return, but probably won't scale to, to a 10X or something. I, how, do you, how do you balance that when you're, when you're doing diligence? Yeah, I mean, we, we, try to, um, we try to find the scenarios where the 10X on financial and the 10X on impact go together. And not only that, we, we talk internally about something called bending the curve, which is to say, if, if there was a straight line on impact to financial, 
how can we engage on impact acceleration so it's like a 10x financial and a 20x impact. By like, for example, with Ray's serving more low-income high schools and inner cities by virtue of getting some philanthropic capital, get them deeper involved in driving impact to, to kind of lower-income populations. So we, we try to find companies like that where it fits together well. We, definitely their education. I mean, for example, natural gas, for example, we've looked at companies that are dealing with displacing coal and fossil to natural gas, but natural gas has methane emissions. And so those edge cases generally, you know, if we can do solar or energy storage or wind or electrification, we say, let's go all the way with it. And, and then we fortunately have had, not had to compromise, so to speak. Um, but there is a danger of falling in love, and Lord knows we've done this in our early history with the deep, the deep social and environmental impacts of the company, and sort of sort of talking ourselves into believing the business model and financial model when it really wasn't there. I mean, I think mm -hmm. in our early, early and sustainable jobs fund in our first fund, we definitely did that. We had pretty restricted deal flow, even the name of the fund, right? Mm -hmm. We attracted entrepreneurs that were pretty heavy on the sustainability side, and so we agreed with them in values, but if we're only seeing, you know, 20 companies a month versus now where we probably look at 200 a month, you know, just the selection process is going to be too screen, too tight. And I think that was an early mistake for us, uh, and, and, and we see it, we still see it happening to some extent today with folks that come into the field and are sort of in love with a particular impact theme. And, and therefore only look at five companies or something mm -hmm. and, and, have to, and might consider having a, a broader, more expansive view. Um, but there are also certainly strategies where you can say, hey, we're going to take a discretionary financial return because of the deep impact, and, and that certainly is needed as well. So you, you, you mentioned a few companies in a few different industries, mobility, education, um, obviously clean tech. How do you evaluate impact across sectors? Is it, is it something you do? I mean, how do you evaluate like an increase in graduation rate versus a decrease in, in greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, yeah. Is it something you do, and, and, and how? It seems like yeah, seems yeah. like it'd be very difficult. It is. It is. I mean, I think we have we we've, we've reported and assessed the impacts of our companies over the 20 years using different protocols. So we've tried to support industry-wide efforts early early days in the community development area in the last decade with Gears and mm -hmm. the work with B-Lab and Magin. Um, and so those that those are attempts to provide some cross-cutting metrics, and there are not many you can use. You can use diversity of management teams and boards. You can use employment, for sure, employment and, and the quality of employment. You can use climate impacts and carbon impacts on some of the portfolio, and we do aggregate um, for those that have significant material and energy impacts. But then you have to essentially have an impact model, impact acceleration, impact management is the current term being used for how the what the particular key levers are, you know, and, and so is it like enhanced um, taking raisin as an example. Do the, the kids that get on the raise platform are they able to to attend college? Are they able to afford college? Are they is they able to attend higher quality colleges by virtue of getting involved with race, for example? So that's very different from a next tracker, which is can we drive down the levelized cost of solar from you know eight cents per kilowatt hour to three cents per kilowatt hour, and therefore displace not only coal but natural gas peak. So mm -hmm. yes, it is, it is. It varies by company and. 
Um, but, but that's okay. I mean, that Lord knows we've got a lot of problems to solve in the world, and that you can't just think of everything's a nail because you got a hammer. You have to have customized tools uh, while still attempting, as best we can, to roll up some aggregate measures. But in the end, you do have some specific to the companies and the sectors. Do you try to put a dollar amount on it, like a, an SROI, like saying, you know, somebody who graduates from from high school has X career, you know, lifetime earnings for somebody who graduates from college and evaluate it like that, or is it? Yeah, we, it, we've seen efforts in that regard, which which seem a little bit like you're know, putting too many significant digits on a, on a yeah. number, right? You know, it's, it's yeah. a little too, um, it, it, we, we, we were a little hesitant in that regard. So I think it, it is more, um, we do use numbers and metrics um, but they're usually numbers tied to the societal or environmental challenge and what we're trying to solve. So whether it's CO2 emissions or employment numbers or educational numbers, we haven't then gone to the dollar value of that carbon, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. That just seemed a little bit like a bridge too far to us right now. Has the expectations from your LPs changed over the years in terms of what they're, they're looking for, for for reporting? I know in, in the industry, obviously, trying to standardize some of the impact measurement and reporting is, is uh, a hot topic and has been for several years. Are you seeing demand on the, on the investor side? Yes, yes. I think that uh, it varies across, and, and maybe I'll just mention the evolution of our limited partner mix. Yeah. So in the first fund, it was mostly CRA banks and foundations. And I think as we've evolved from $17 million in the first fund to 28 to 90 to 125 across the four funds, by the fourth fund, we now have like 30 foundation endowments, but it is all, it's the endowment. Uh, it is mission-related, not a PRI, public, uh, you know, COVID-related investment, which we had in the first one for MacArthur, for example. So so the, the world has definitely opened up among, in certain categories, certainly some early moving foundation endowments, uh, family offices, some pensions, and then various wealth advisory consulting groups like the Cambridge Associates and Mercer, Goldman Sachs, which acquired Imprint, you're seeing more um, platforms that are beginning to adopt impact investing. So with that, there has been more rigor placed on us on all kinds of reporting. So on not only our audit process, our financial management, um, you know, quarterly reporting. Actually this afternoon we're having our limited partner calls, so we do quarterly calls with, with each fund where we go through each company, talk about the pluses, the minuses, what we're working on next, we talk about pending investments. So we're pretty engaged with our limited partners and we do an annual meeting. We've got our 20th anniversary annual meeting here later uh, in the year in New York in November. So, and yes, the, on the impact reporting, a number of our investors were, were advocates of gears. And so, and we, Stephanie and our team was RV Lab years ago in the development of years, so we have adopted and supported that. We're working on some new impact with metric platforms going forward. I think we, we there is a variety. So all of our investors want to see the financial results and their K1s and all of that. And then in terms of the rigor on what they want to see on impact reporting and impact thesis, it, it does vary. Probably the foundations are deeper and more rigorous in that than, than our other investors. So you, you mentioned that the first fund was 17 million, and I think yet the fourth fund that you closed a couple of years ago was 120, 125. That's right. um, so you know, besides the LP mix, I imagine that 
a lot has changed in terms of uh, the companies that you're investing in. You're probably not investing in seven or eight times as many companies. So I assume it's a, a later stage. And how else has the diligence process changed from being a 17 million fund to 120 plus? Sure, sure. So I think that um, we aren't investing, we're, we're still aiming for mid-teens to 20 companies per fund. Uh, okay. So it is more dollars per company. Uh, but in terms of stage, we maintain a fair amount of flexibility. So we, we are investing sometimes fairly early and we have flexibility to go fairly small, one or a million or so. And we have flexibility to do a buyout as well. But our sweet spot is typically about $5 million from our fund, leading rounds, usually Series A or B, preferred uh, fund, uh, in financings, the minority stake where we're engaged with the board. We generally uh, lead or co-lead deals. We just, we just um, a deal we haven't announced yet is a mobility deal where we're leading a Series A of $8 million, for example. Um, and so that's the kind of the typical sweet spot. So that is more more capital from SJF. Whereas I think in our early days, we may be working with financing, maybe a little smaller, but not that much smaller. But more we had to fight to get other co-investors in. And I think now we can kind of control the destiny of the financings a lot more. We definitely bring in co-investors, but it's more selective and more those that we really feel like are going to add additional value to the company. So if I can pivot a little bit, a year ago you uh, you were one of the founding members of the Impact Capital Managers, and uh, you co-chair it now. You currently have, which is I should say, the ICM is a, an association of impact fund managers. Um, currently, you have over 11 billion, I think, under management. What what was the impetus for for creating ICM? Sure. So, um, so Brian Trailstead at Bridges and myself helped to to get launched along with a set of other funds. Uh, and this this trade association we just are coming off of actually yesterday, our our most late, latest annual meeting mm-hmm. um, at Duke Cooper School Business, hosted by the Case Program. And the reason we started ICM was that there was no home for funds like us to really. There's something of general partners that deal with all the issues of raising funds, building teams, investing in companies, managing those companies, exiting them. If there's a, there's a, it's kind of like being a great craftsman or something. There's, there's a craft to this work that you do, and it's really helpful to be able to meet other craftspeople that are working in the field and, mm-hmm. and share notes. And it's a very, it's a collegial, and we often will co-invest with other funds in the network. And the, there's the broader Venture Capital Association, NBCA, but it doesn't really have, it overlaps at times on issues that we would agree with on clean tax or immigration, but on other issues on tax policy, we may disagree that, that they're advocating really for the good of the whole society. And so really, Impact Capital Managers is, is in the, the work groups like the GEN, for example, are a broader global and limited partner-oriented impact organization doing great research and work. There was really nothing focused on serving uh, for serving these funds and helping us to, to grow. As, and so, so yeah, we're we're excited. We're it's, it's early days. We just hired a new executive director, and we've got about 33, 34 funds involved. We think there are about 100 funds in North America that could qualify, which is to say, market rate, impact strategy, you know, 10, 20 million or more in AUM, 
uh, you know, in scaling within with, within different verticals, be education, health, sustainability, uh, bottom of the pyramid, fintech, et cetera. So we're thrilled to be to be building that out. And I should mention, we were talking about Alpha and Impact. We released a study with Tideline called the Alpha and Impact, which is getting at the questions we've been talking about, which is instead to flip the dialogue to say, what's the trade-off? Instead say, what's the advantage of being an impact fund? How can you win access to companies? How can you build value while you're in the company? When you exit, how can you get a win-win exit? We have a panel here in the Mo Summit about that later uh, this week. So I think we're trying to basically also, for the women partner world, say, hey, there's something here. Yeah, there, there, there's a way to really drive great results in a way that are in, integrated with your values. Yeah, it's a great report. I believe there are 10, um, you call them, you know, advantages to investing in social impact companies that you run through and do case studies out of your your portfolio. That's great. I mean, you've read it. I'm I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's great. Yeah, no, we actually at our session yesterday, these impact drivers, which are around the three phases of getting engaged and in investing in a company, managing the company to build value, and then exiting uh, the company, we actually put them up on on the on the wall and put kind of green and red stickies where we thought our funds were doing well and where mm -hmm. we thought we needed to enhance. And that's just the kind of work that that I think we need to do is is to say, how do we build this practice? How do we get more rigorous? We've had engagement from, you know, academic institutions like HBS and Duke Business School and, and Chicago and Wharton and others. And so there's, you know, Michigan. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, connecting with academia too to say, just like all the rigor around conventional VC, how do we build rigor around impact VC and impact PE so that we can grow this field and grow the success of these funds and the success of the companies uh, to, to sort of help transform the economy here? Yeah, I've been, I've been amazed working in this industry, how collaborative it is. Like, you know, these, these organizations that you would think would be sort of competing, instead everyone's trying to to build the ecosystem, it seems like. It's still such a nascent industry, I guess, that, that people are more focused on, on ecosystem building, like what it sounds like you're trying to do with, with impact capital managers, whereas, you know, it, at first glance, some of the funds that you're working with would seem to be direct competitors. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, um, there, there is, we all co-invest with conventional venture capital private equity funds because um, to some extent, there's often not enough capital around the table that has an impact orientation or, or a thesis. And so I think we prefer to invest with funds that we know are like-minded and like-minded with the entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. we've all probably been in syndicates where we've got, we've got a conventional VC that's pulling the company in what we think is the wrong direction, both for financial and impact results. And so, yeah, no, I think it is. And we're building an ecosystem now. I think, you know, we've had... We've had the early stage uh, funds, uh, you know, Impact America, Sustain BC, and many others. And then we've got the mid, mid stage funds like SGF, DBL, and mm -hmm. City Light Nubs. And now we're getting the bigger and later stage funds. So Bain Double Impact's here at the conference with mm -hmm. us, and TPG Rise, and um, KKR's uh, new effort, Partners Group. So we're building out that ecosystem, and we want to maintain, especially as we get the bigger folks involved maintain an authenticity, a commitment to impact, uh, and to driving, you know, results that, that, that are what we're, why we're all involved in this field. Yeah. Last question for you. How has the work stayed fulfilling to you 
after 20 years. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I think it's it's better than, than in some of the early years when it was more of a struggle, you know. Yeah. So I think that uh, fundraising, particularly for general partners that are getting started, is it's like having the second or third job because you're in, you're usually investing in companies while you're still trying to bring in capital. And perhaps it's a good discipline because entrepreneurs have to do that too. Um, mm-hmm. But I think fortunately for us, um, with our fourth fund, our target was 100 million. Uh, our hard cap was 125 million, and we raised that all in one quarter. And wow. So whereas you know our second fund, it took us. A, two plus years to raise because we have both we were still building our team, building our results and our track record and there was less of an understanding of what impact investing is. So I think so I think actually now I get to spend more time like we're gonna be doing today here at the Mo Summit, meeting with companies, engaging with companies, engaging with the market and policy, et cetera, and less on having to fundraise. So it's nice uh, and I should say we've had the chance to build a great team now. So it's less it's it's you know there's there's there, we've got um, you know, five you know five sort of folks managing directors two principals three analysts we've got a bunch of folks who can help lead and work with companies and lead transactions in a ways that we you know, we've always had a pretty big team but uh, with the fundraising it was a it's all it's still long hours but not quite as long hours as it was in the earlier years. I know I told you that was the last question but if you don't mind one more really quick do you have any advice for people who are trying to get into the industry? You know, you talked about working with, with academia, um, and I think that there's a lot of demand for to work in impact investing, but it's it's a it's a really challenging industry to break into. Yeah, no, it is. I think there aren't, um, you know, it depends on how you define it, but it, of the funds like their impact capital managers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you typically see hiring when someone raises a new fund. Mm-hmm. And so... I mean, what I would advise is to, for folks say in business school, to work on trying to get internship or fellowships with with funds, even if they're not hiring yet, because that gives a chance to get experience and for them to get to know you. So we have, we, for example, this summer we'll have, you know, three MBA venture fellows across our three of our offices, and so that's that's one way to, to get involved with funds. But I think the other thing is to have a more expansive view, to be involved in entrepreneurial companies to potentially go to other financial institutions that have some impact orientation. But you're right, it is a it is a thin wedge and and, and, and so you have to have a broader view of what the potential can be. Um, I should mention we're developing a, a diversity a sort of fellowship program within impact capital managers because I think one of the things we want to do is to have more people of color, more women involved in the ICM funds and membership than you see in commission with the capital private equity. Mm-hmm. And also because that adds an advantage uh, for us in accessing great opportunities that are being missed by others. So mm-hmm. in our portfolio, Jopwell, which is a leading kind of black Latino Native American recruitment platform is a great example, or Solera Health, which is led by a very dynamic woman CEO. So I think I think those are roles we can play within ICM, but yeah, no, I think it, it takes, you know, the quote I often share with students is that the place you're called to is the place where your greatest joy and the world's greatest need intersect, mm-hmm. um, which is by Frederick Buechner. And I think that I think that you have to have a broader view of that and don't, you know, I do see students who say, I must be an impact investing. And there are just not that many slides. It's like, <laughs> like hey, the world's a big place. There's a lot of things that need to be changed. Think about your passion. Think about the opportunities you see in front of you and think about more creative paths. 
Because I tell you, you know, if you have operating experience, and so one of the folks, Jackie Bennett, a senior analyst who's here with me at the Mo Summit, worked before Schoology, which is an ed tech uh, company, a private equity funding. So she brings, and she had been in investment banking and entrepreneurship. So the, the not having having had some operating experience, uh, as well as say banking or consulting, etc., brings some brings a lot more. Because if you aspire to be in fact investing, if you're going to be advising entrepreneurs, serving on their boards, ideally you'd have more credibility if you yourself had to work struggle to meet payroll or to roll out a new product. So, mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd say, hey, get in an operating company for a while. Fire is another, another, or start your own company. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me and for all the work that you've done to to help build up this this industry. And uh, best of luck with Fund Four and with the Impact Capital Managers. I'm looking forward to to seeing what you do next. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for all of your work, Alex, and the work of SoCap, et cetera. We appreciate y'all's building work as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning and bearing with us through the poor quality audio. I really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down with Dave, who is obviously a wealth of impact investing knowledge and experience. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate us on iTunes and share it with a friend. On our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net, we'll share some of the resources that we discussed during the episode, such as the Tideline White Paper, The Alpha in Impact. We have a couple great events coming up in the next few months that I wanted to highlight. We're doing a three-part SOCAP 365 breakfast series in Baltimore with events on May 15th, June 27th, and July 10th. All three events focus on building community wealth with topics such as alternative ownership structures and regenerative community development. We also have Spectrum coming up in Atlanta on June 12th and 13th. Spectrum is a new two-day convening of multicultural leaders and changemakers working to close the racial wealth gap and create systems for supporting entrepreneurs and business leaders of color. We hope you're able to join us for some of these important discussions. As always, if you have any feedback or suggestions for us, we'd love to hear from you at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.